0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. It was a time of crisis. It was a time of cultural collapse and chaos. It was a time when the economy began to plummet. A once robust economy began to plummet. It was a time when a sleeping superpower, which had become dormant, reawakened and started attacking unprovoked, innocent nations around it. It was a time when cities, which used to be places of safety and beauty, had become places of violence and murder, and they were literally on fire. It was a time when the gap between the rich and the poor had become dangerously inequitable and where the rich were so removed, so detached from the poor, actual lives of real poor people, that their hearts had grown numb and even callous. It was a time when there was a leadership vacuum, and nobody knew who to turn to, who was speaking the truth, and who could lead through this crisis. I'm not talking about the newspaper that you might read this morning. I'm talking about 2,700 years ago when a man named Isaiah penned a book that we know, the book of Isaiah, and which we as Christians, which we would share with our Jewish friends, was inspired by the living God, and is the Word of God, was the Word of God, and still is the Word of God. It was a time of prosperity, an economic boom in Isaiah's day, until it wasn't anymore. It was a time of military might until the superpower to the northeast, Assyria, began to wake up again and to assert its military might and began attacking surrounding nations. And we actually have a historical document where one of the kings of Assyria, a man named Sennacherib, boasts that he had taken 46 different towns and villages and had hauled away over 200,000 prisoners of war. Over 200,000 captives. A young man named Isaiah received a vision from God. He believed what he thought he believed was the Word of God. We believe it's the Word of God. And he began to proclaim the Word of God, and a lot of what he proclaimed was bad news. It was judgment, because God's people were not well. They were sick spiritually, sick in their approach to economics, sick in their treatment of the poor, sick in their worship, sick in their sexuality. So there are scenes of judgment throughout these 66 chapters, but then there are also scenes woven in, lots of them actually, of radical hope. So in Isaiah, you will find, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 4, where the Lord says, every instrument of war, every instrument of violence, every gun, every instrument that's used to destroy people's lives, although at times they may be necessary in this fallen world, they will be beaten into plowshares, and they won't be in heaven anymore. Isaiah chapter 40 has this beautiful passage about the glory of the high exalted God who in his sight the nations are like grasshoppers. And yet he gives strength to the weary. And he helps us rise up with wings like eagles. In Isaiah chapter 53 we have this beautiful passage about this suffering servant who will come. And it says of him, we were all like sheep that have gone astray, but on him was laid the iniquity of us all. By his wounds we are healed clearly talking about Jesus and then at the very end the last word is word of praise and hope chapter 65 verses 17 and 25 where the Lord says I will make all things new I will make a new heavens and a new earth that's the last word so for the next 12 weeks we're gonna do a preaching series through the summer on some of the highlights of Isaiah and As I was talking this week with a friend from a certain African nation, I'll call his name John, and I was telling him about what we were going to preach and what the book of Isaiah, and he said, that is just like so many things we're going through today. So relevant, so parable, but so parallel. And, And I love the fact that I don't need to make the Bible relevant. I don't need to prove the Bible's relevant. I just honestly think we just need to preach it Engage in it, and it will be relevant. So I want to invite you, with that introduction to the whole series, turn with me, if you will, to page 566 in your pew Bibles, and we're going to walk through this first chapter. And as you do that, let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, pour out your Spirit on us here gathered, that we may hear your word of judgment, hear your word of truth, hear your word that um, cleanses us from the inside out, and that you would transform us to truly be the people who reflect your character, your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in my life, I've only had to see a surgeon once. I'm sure I'll do that more as I get older. But I was, in, I was a freshman in college and I was playing a game of pickup basketball, and I had this amazing play. I was on a breakaway with another guy, it was a two-on-one. I was gonna stop, I was gonna make this amazing behind-the-back bounce pass to the guy right there. I stopped, I planted my knee, and my foot stopped, my knee kept going. I tore up my ACL, and I needed surgery. So I went to Dr. Tamborino and he dined in Minnesota, and he did this really old-fashioned surgery that nobody would ever do today, but it basically worked, and he put together my knee, so now I'm, I can stand, I don't have any pain. I can chase my two-year-old grandson. I can take walks in the Lincoln Marsh. And so I am really grateful for Dr. Tamborino. Now, I've been around doctors enough. My son is a doctor. My dad is a doctor. I've been around doctors enough to know that surgeons, as a class of people with notable exceptions, are not always the nicest people in the world, right? And if you're a surgeon, I'm sorry. I apologize. But you all just aren't that nice all the time. But you know what? I don't really care if you're nice, because when my knee's torn up, I just need somebody that can put my knee back together more than anything. I'll let somebody else in the hospital be nice to me. If your arteries are clogged, if you have cancer, you want the surgeon to go in and get it, and get it all. You want the surgeon to restore you to health once again. And that's what the book of Isaiah is ultimately about. So in these interweaving throughout the 66 chapters, there's interweaving scenes of judgment. There are scenes of grace and scenes of restoration. And just keep in mind that the ultimate goal and the ultimate end, the ultimate telos, is restoration. God wants to restore the heavens and the earth. He wants to restore you. As St. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, literally a new creation. The old things have passed, the new has come. God wants to do that in you. He wants to do that in your life. He wants to do it in our world as well. So as I look through this passage, I, I want, there's kind of three movements to this passage. My friend Andy helped me with this passage, and I'm really grateful for that. So there is first the diagnosis. The surgeon gives us the diagnosis, and it's bad. And then there's what the wrong treatment, the wrong remedy, the wrong Rx, the wrong procedure. And then Isaiah gives us the right remedy, the right treatment. So first, the bad news. Verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 1. The book begins with this. The Lord says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sorry to mix my metaphors, but really this is more like a prosecuting attorney. And the Lord is saying, I have a case, a solid, airtight case against my people, and I want you all to hear it. So he calls heaven and earth as his witnesses. This is a cosmic accusation, and he's going point by point. This is why the defendant is guilty, or in medical terms, really sick. The end of verse two, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So the Lord is saying, my people are like, they're like a a child, now a young adult, who grows up and says, you know, I know mom and dad, I know you raised me, I know you fed me, I know you paid for everything, I know you taught me your values. I know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? I'm done with you. It's over. I'm turning my back on you. Or the Lord uses another example. It's like a farm animal. Say a cow, Bessie the cow, who's been raised by the farmer, who has known the farmer. The farmer's helped feed, feed her, house her, deliver her calves. And the cow says, what owner? I don't have. I'm going to turn my back. So verse 4, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Literally in the original language, they have turned their back on me. So we were meant, you were designed for a face-to-face relationship with the living God in in union, in intimacy. And it says that you have turned your back on me. And now you're estranged from me. Well, no wonder, because you've turned your back on me. It's a picture of willful rejection. There's a really moving quote from a philosopher named Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist. He wrote a book maybe five years ago, seven years ago, called Mind and Cosmos how the materialist Darwinian conception of reality is almost certainly false, is the subtitle. He got in a lot of trouble from fellow atheists for saying that the materialist, that all there is is matter, nothing spiritual, no God, no heavens, no hell, no morality outside of us, except unless we make it ourselves, how that view of reality is almost certainly false but he hasn't been able to believe that God is who God says he is. And he actually said this. He said, a lot of religious believers are some of the most intelligent people I know. They're not stupid. And he said, I quote, and it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God, exclamation mark. I don't want there to be a God, he wrote. I don't want to be a uni- there to be a universe like that. It's really honest. But you know what? Every time we as Christians sin, we are saying the same thing. We are saying, I don't really want there to be a God right now just for this minute, just for these few minutes, just for this season of my life. I don't really want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a universe like that. So notice the symptoms of the disease as we continue through this first passage. The middle part of verse 5, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. You're like a guy, a person that really needs to go to the ER quickly. And it's not so much that you feel beat up or that you have all these wounds. That's not the worst of it. The worst of it is at the end of verse six, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You won't go to the doctor. You refuse to get help, or you refuse to go to the ultimate source of help. You ever done that? Maybe you can relate to that. A couple years ago, I had an incident, we'll call it, with the back of my hand and a newly sharpened mower blade, which I won't go into the details, but it was rather gruesome, but I'm sitting there holding my hand thinking, well, I think I can fix this, you know? I'll just pour some hydrogen peroxide on it, which probably would have made me pass out, now that I think about it. And I'll just put some Band-Aids on it and wrap it really tight. And then I sent some pictures to my son, who's an emergency room doctor. He said, oh, Dad, you gotta be kidding me. You need to go to the ER. So I went to the ER, found out not only did I need stitches, I needed surgery to repair severed tendons. It was way worse than I imagined. And the Lord is saying, your sin may be way worse than you ever imagined. But there is a source of hope and help, but don't try to deal with it superficially. Don't do this on your own. You're not going to find healing. So that is the diagnosis, the surgical diagnosis. Then there's the wrong remedy in verses 10 through 15. Well, okay, we're sick, but let's just worship more. But the Lord says, but actually, that's a big part of your problem because your worship is off too. Your worship isn't really getting my heart, and it's not responding to my heart. So verse 11, again, with this surgical precision, The Lord says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, said the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, the problem was not with the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was something that God set up and something God gave as a gift actually to the Jewish people to show them the gravity of sin, to show them a picture of forgiveness and to show them ultimately to point to Jesus, the ultimate one who is sacrificed for us. But the sacrificial system was really about love and adoration. But they missed the whole point. They missed the point. And God is speaking and saying, you forgot all of that. You, you, your worship doesn't have any of that. You're missing the point. So notice verse 11. He says, look at what the Lord says through this passage. He says, I've had enough of your worship, enough already. Verse eleven, he also says, "I do not delight." Verse twelve, he says, "When you come to appear before me, who is required of you? This trampling of my courts. Who asked you to do this?" Verse thirteen, "I cannot endure this anymore. I'm, I've had it up to here." The Lord says. You know, we might say, "Well, as long as our worship is sincere, right?" Well. Not necessarily, because it can be sincerely wrong. It can be sincerely off. Verse 14, my soul hates your worship. It's become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing it. When you, verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Why would he not listen? Because your hands are full of blood. Blood of what? Who? Who? The innocent, blood of violence, blood of killing the innocent. The Lord says all throughout the Old Testament, he hates the shedding of innocent blood. And then in verse 17, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. How am I going to do that? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. That's repentance. That's just saying, Lord, I can't, I can't stop what I'm doing, but I want to repent. And then it says, learn to do good. Why learn? Because most of us aren't, it's not natural for us. We have to learn it. It's acquired. And then he says, it, kind of the, the pinnacle of this section, he says, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He picks out two groups of people in his society of his day were the people that were the most vulnerable, the most in peril, the most unable to provide for themselves economically. And he says, Here's the test of your worship. Here's a diagnostic. Do you care for those groups of people? Are they on your radar? Are you detached from them? Are you numb to them? Are you callous to them? Or do you truly care about them? Now, there's something glaringly different in the biblical worldview and the worldview of the religions around the Jewish people at this time. So some of these religious systems had laws protecting the most vulnerable, but they were very different from the Jewish laws. The roots didn't go very deep. Whereas the biblical worldview, this view of caring for the most vulnerable, people unable to provide for themselves economically, was rooted in the character of God. It was God's heart. So God said, I want you to be like that. I want you to treat these people this way also included the foreigner as well. I want you to treat them this way because I treat them that way. And I treat them that way because that's who I am. It's not just something I do, it's who I am. So when you hear about our ministries at Church of the Resurrection, which we're we're always, we're just, uh, we're passionate about growing in these areas and we know we have ways to grow, but we're really passionate about Tying together sanctity of life, unborn children and their mothers and fathers. We're passionate about children who have been adopted or who are in foster care in our replanted ministry. We're passionate about a ministry that you'll hear more about in the coming months, which I think we're going to call Res Abilities, which is has to do with ministering, loving to persons and families that are caring for somebody with disabilities or people that have disabilities. We want to tie all three of those together. It's not one or the other. So if we pursue justice, which a lot of people in our culture are really passionate about, but if you pursue justice without worship, I just got to say, you have no roots. You have no basis, solid basis in morality to say you ought to do that. But if you pursue worship without justice for the most vulnerable, this passage would ask, who are you worshiping? You're not worshiping the living God. You're worshiping a false god. So there's the diagnosis. It is brutally honest. But it is, again, think of the surgeon. It's all about restoration. So what is the right remedy? Well, we see it at the very end of this literary unit, this section from verses 1 through 20. Verse 18, these two incredible words where the Lord says, come now. They, are out of, they come from out of the blue. You don't expect them. The Lord says, come now. Come on in. It's words of invitation. It's words of welcome. It's words of love. It's words of hospitality. There's all throughout Isaiah, actually, there's these great come, come now statements. For instance, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a metaphorical picture of salvation. The only thing you need is you just need to know you're thirsty. You need to know you're hungry. And you need to know the source of the one who can address those needs. Come now. So Isaiah chapter 1 says, come now. Let us reason together. Let's, Let's talk. I want to talk to you. Not as your prosecutor, not as your surgeon now, but as your tender, loving, heavenly father. I want to talk to you. I want you to come near. I cannot read these words without thinking of the Gospels where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. I came for people who are sick and they know they need a doctor. That's who I came for. So if that's you this morning, you qualify. And I love this promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Somebody pointed out to me that snow and wool are naturally white. You don't have to do anything to make snow whiter. It's as white as it can be, and it's white. So what the Lord is promising here is not only forgiveness, not only cleansing, but also a new creation. That God can make you new. That he can give you a new start. No matter what your week was like, or your month was like, or your year was like, or no matter what your life has been like, or no matter what kind of person you're becoming, you can have a new beginning. In Christ, all things can become new. There's nothing he cannot forgive. There's nothing he cannot cleanse. There's nothing he cannot make new. So this invitation is come all who are thirsty, come all who are hungry, come all who are weary, come all who are sinners, come all who are ashamed or confused or angry or addicted or depressed or whatever. Come as you are, but come open, expecting, asking to be transformed. Notice the rest of this passage. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Come ready to say, Lord, I'm yours. I haven't been obeying you, but I want, to start, I want to start listening to you. I want to start obeying you. Come prepared for the living God to transform you so that your heart begins to beat with the heart of the living God. And that will transform your worship. Because now you're worshiping the true and living God, and you're asking him to make you like him, and it will transform this first section, the diagnosis, because no matter what the diagnosis the Lord gives you, you can come to him, and you can bring it to him. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening.